You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 6. I'm going to read together verses 35 through verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word and we confess that in ourselves we are unable to understand spiritual things. It is only the gift of your spirit. It is our new nature and new mind that you have given to us, which enables us to understand these things. And we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that you would give us illumination in the text of Scripture today. We pray that we may see and hear here not just the words of mere men, not John, but of the Lord Jesus himself in the inspired text of Scripture. Give us hearts that are willing to submit themselves to truth and to take truth as it is stated to us and to yield ourselves to it. We pray that you would keep us from the error of trying to understand things that you have not revealed and to reconcile things that are not an enmity with one another. We pray that you'd be glorified now in this time as we go through this passage in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but my heart rejoices when I hear the fact, I hear the truth, that my salvation does not depend upon a decision that I made in time but upon a decision that God made in eternity past. I rejoice when I am told that my salvation does not rest upon me and my abilities and my intellect or my spiritual dispositions, but upon a choice that God made and an action that God took long before he ever spoke anything into existence. I rejoice in that truth because I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself to make wise choices. I don't trust myself to have spiritual insight. I don't trust myself to even will the right things. I don't trust myself to even will myself into the kingdom of heaven because my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And in my unredeemed state, untouched by the grace of God, I am at enmity with God and hostile to God and I hate God and I love darkness and I hate truth and I hate light and I hate all things righteous. And all I want was to run far from God. But I rejoice in the fact that I am not the one who determined my salvation and I am not the one who chose to be saved before in eternity past, that my salvation, my deliverance from sin, all of that rests not on a decision that I made in time, but upon a decision that God the Father made and He sealed with God the Son, not in time, but in eternity past. I think that there's something wrong with a Christian's heart who does not rejoice in that truth. That is the most humbling, the most comforting, the most encouraging truth that I could possibly 
set my mind and my heart upon. To rest in that. That ultimately, my salvation does not boil down to a decision that I made. It's not my spiritual disposition. It's not my abilities. It rests with the nature, the character, the choice, the providence, the decree, and the eternal plan of God to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by redeeming a people for His own possession out of all of the peoples of the world to redeem for Himself a bride that will honor and worship and serve and glorify Him and spend all of eternity with Him. That is a marvelous truth. It's not one that's popular in our day because we like to think that somehow our salvation rests upon us and ultimately our security even in salvation rests upon us and our abilities, our ability to believe, our likelihood to believe. And yet this very truth that the Father has given to the Son a people for the Son's possession, He is committed to His Son a people that His Son would go and save those people. That's the truth of John 6, verse 37. And we saw last week, we looked at just the first of three very marvelous truths in that verse. The first one was that the Father has given a people to the Son. Verse 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. There is the second truth, and that is that all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. Not some, but all. All whom the Father has given to the Son will with certainty come to the Son. And then the third truth, which we're going to look at next week, we're just dwelling on the second today, the third truth is that all who come to the Son are welcomed and received by the Son. And that's worth the whole sermon in itself, and we'll tackle that next week. So last week we saw that the Father has given a people to His Son. That that is an intimate giving. It is a loving giving. It is the expression of the Father's love for the Son, that He would give to His Son a people. And that this was this was the plan in eternity past, when the Father gave a people to the Son. It was an expression of the Father's love for the Son and for those people. That was John 17, which we read. Because the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world with an infinite and eternal divine love, and because the Father loved His people, His sheep, before the foundation of the world, He by His grace set His love upon those people. There was nothing greater that the Father could do to express His infinite love for the Son and His infinite love for those people than to commit the people whom He loved to the safekeeping, salvation, and secure work of the Son whom He loved. And the Son, in response to that divine love, covenanted with the Father that the Son would save all whom the Father had given to Him. That this love gift from the Father would be received by the Son, and the Son would lay down His life to purchase the salvation and to atone for the sins of that bride, that people whom the Father has committed to His care. And furthermore, that the Son then, because of His love for the Father, would secure the salvation of all of those people and bring them all safely to glory, raise them all up on the last day, and present them to His Father, a glorious bride, a redeemed humanity, a people for His own precious possession. I just want to sit down. Because I can spend the rest of my life just dwelling on that reality. That the Father has given a people to His Son. And the Son knew who those people were. The Son came to offer His life in place of those people, to redeem those people, and to secure those people, and ultimately to glorify those people. And the promise of the Son is that of all that the Father has given to me, 
I will lose none. So the Father has given a people to the Son. Now today, we look at verse 37, that these people, all whom the Father has given to the Son, will come to the Son. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now of all of this group of humanity chosen out of the world, chosen from amongst the goats, these people who belong to the Father, who are given by the Father to the Son, how many of those people will come to the Son? What does the text say? How many? Most? Some? Majority? Vast majority? A good number? An undefined number? How many is it? It is all. It's all. It's not all except for a couple. It's not all except for those who are unwilling. It's not all except for a few who will lose themselves. It's not most. It is all without exception. It is all that the Father has given to the Son that will with certainty come to the Son. And all who come to the Son, the Father will draw to the Son. Verse 44, that's how they come to the Son. Because no man can come to the Father, uh, to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws him. All that are given by the Father to the Son will be drawn to the Son. They will come to the Son. They will behold or see the Son. They will believe upon the Son. The Son will give them eternal life. And the Son's commitment is, I myself will raise them up at the last day. You see that phrase at the end of verse 39? I will raise them up on the last day. Now you may disagree with me on the timing of this resurrection, but this is the resurrection that we talked about back in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. And those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And this, when Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 39, that there, he will raise them up on the last day, he is speaking of the resurrection to life. Prior to eternity, when we receive our glorified bodies, there will be this resurrection of life. Those who are given by the Father to the Son receive eternal life. The Son gives them eternal life. He gives eternal life to His sheep because He died for His sheep. And at the end of time, the Son will raise up all of His sheep. And they will all be raised up on the last day to the resurrection of life. You'll notice that the phrase resurrect, raised up on the last day is repeated not just in verse 39, but in verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You see it repeated in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Four times that phrase is mentioned. It refers to the resurrection of life to those who have repented, who have beheld the Son, believed in the Son, repented of their sins, and received eternal life. All of them, without exception, are raised up on the last day. That is the work of the Son. In verse 39, it is those whom the Father has given to Him that are raised up. In verse 40, it is those who have believed on Him and received eternal life that are raised up. In verse 44, it is those who are drawn by the Father to the Son who are raised up. And in verse 54, it is those who have received eternal life that are raised up. This being raised up to eternal life describes, or raised up on the last day, describes those whom the Father has given to the Son, whom the Father draws to the Son, who come to the Son because the Father is drawing them. They see the Son, behold the Son, believe on the Son, receive eternal life from the Son, are kept by the Son, and eventually are raised up by the Son. This is all one group. And those who are at the beginning of this process, given by the Father to the Son, 
are all of those who are raised up on the last day. There is a logical and chronological order to every statement that Jesus makes. He builds a case starting with an act by the Father in eternity past where he committed to the Son a people. And Jesus says, all of those people, I will raise them up on the last day. They will all come to me. They all will come to me. Not a few, and not most, but all of them will come to me. Now let me ask you a question. Out of this group of humanity, which are given by the Father to the Son, how many of them will come to the Son? All. How many of them will fail to come to the Son? None. Out of the group of humanity that is not given by the Father to the Son in a salvific sense, how many of them will come to the Son? None. None. Is there going to be some individual standing in heaven whom the Father forgot to give to the Son for the Son's saving purposes, who in himself was able to repent and believe, who was given eternal life, who was indwelt by the Spirit of God, received all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, was adopted into God's family, sealed by the Spirit, given a spiritual gift, included in the bride, in the church, who was not first given by the Father to the Son. Is there such an individual? No, there is not. Why will none of those who are not given by the Father to the Son, why will none of them come to the Son? None of them will come to the Son, and this is where you're going to choke, verse 44, because they are not able to. They cannot. Why can they not? Or why can't they? They can't because they are unwilling Because they love darkness more than light, because they are not willing, because they do not will to come to the Son, they will not. They do not have the capacity to come to the Son because they are unwilling to come to the Son and they want nothing to do with the Son. They, it's, it's, when Jesus says no man can come to me, he's not saying no man is permitted. As if there are a bunch of people from this group over here who have not been given by the Father to the Son who are all saying, who will pick me? Pick me. I want to go. I want to be in heaven. I want to be with the Son. But God is saying, no, 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 you can't. I'm not permitting you to, even though you're willing, even though you want to, even though you desire to. I'm not allowing you to. I'm only allowing this group over here. That's not this doctrine. That's not what this says. It's not that no man is permitted. It's that no man has the capacity. The word is a word of capacity. He doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have the ability to come because he does not want To come. It is his lack of will. It is his lack of desire, which is his lack of capacity. Because man exercises his corrupt nature, or his his decisions, in accordance with his nature, which is always corrupt. So no man can come to the Father unless the Father, or to Jesus, unless the Father who sent the Son draws that individual to his Son. That's verse 44. So none of them will come. That is the, that is the comprehensiveness of this statement in verse 37 that it is all. Jesus is describing a group, a corporate group. It's not that all of us come to the Son in the same place or at the same time or in the same way. There, I would doubt if there are any two people in this congregation who got saved at the exact same time. You certainly did not get saved at the same time as Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon 
or John Wesley or Charles Wesley or even the Apostle Paul. None of you got saved at the same time they did, did you? No, but all of those individuals belong to this collective group, all of whom will be saved and none of whom will be lost because all of them will come and all of them will believe and all of them will receive eternal life and all of them will be raised up on the last day and none of them will be lost. All of us belong to that group so that each of us comes to Christ in our own time, by God's, at God's appointed time, in our own way, which is God's appointed way, and at that appointed hour when the Father has drawn us to the Son and given us the faith to believe and granted us repentance and made Christ precious to us, and we trust and embrace Him. All who are given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. That's the comprehensiveness of it. Notice also, second, the certainty of it. The certainty of it. All that the Father gives me might come to me. Is that what the text says? Does it say all that the Father gives me, of all of them that they are more likely to come to me? That they could come to me? They might come to me? Probably come to me? More disposed to come to me? Does the text even say that the Father gave a people to the Son because the Father foresaw that those people would come to Him? doesn't say that either, does it? You know what it says? It says all that the Father has given to me this is an eternity past, will, will come. There's no ambiguity. There's no equivocation. There's no uncertainty. There's no words of qualification or equivocation in Jesus' words. It is a statement of certainty. They will come. They absolutely will come. How is it that Jesus can say with such certainty that all that the Father has given to Him will come to Him? How can He make such an ironclad guarantee of our coming to the Son? How can He say that? It is because Jesus knows, first of all, the will of the Father. It is the will of the Father that of all that He has given to me, they will come to me and I will give them eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 39 and 40. This is the Father's will that if everyone who beholds the Son, believes in the Son, receives eternal life and I raise them up. That's the will of the Father. And Jesus knows what the will of the Father is. He knew when He spoke these words that it was the will of the Father to save me. And Jesus knows that God will accomplish all His good pleasure and God's purposes and His saving decrees will not be thwarted And he knows with absolute certainty what the will of the Father was. The will of the Father was that you be saved if you're in Christ. And that I be saved since I am in Christ. That was the Father's will. And since that was the Father's will, Jesus knew God is going to accomplish his will concerning his people. Not only did Jesus know the will of the Father, he also knew the power of the Father. Is there anything too difficult for God? Can my, can my unbelief, my hostility, and my resistance to the grace of God, can that ultimately triumph over God's saving purposes? Are the decrees of God up in the air dependent upon whether or not I decide to let God's decree happen or not? It's not. That's absurd. God has decreed something. He willed it from eternity past. He committed it to the Son. And Jesus can say with absolute certainty, because I know the will of the Father, because I know the power of the Father to save those who are His own, I am absolutely confident in the security of all those whom the Father has committed to my charge. All of them will come to me. Not one who is given by the Father to the Son will not come. And none who are not given will eventually come. Now, which is it that precedes which? Does our belonging to the Son precede our believing? Or does our believing precede our belonging? Our belonging to the Son precedes our believing. We do not belong to Him because we believe. We believe because we belong to Him. That's the teaching here in John 6. It is the giving of the Father to the Son of these people 
It is that which precedes the people who come to him, not only logically, but also chronologically. It is that's the teaching in John 8, where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not of God. If you belong to God, if you were one of his people, you would believe me because I speak the truth. And those who belong to God hear the truth. You don't hear the truth because you don't belong to God. John chapter 10, you're not of my sheep. That's why you do not believe. You do not believe because you do not belong to me. And in John 17, Jesus said, it is because the Father gave a people to the Son that they have heard the word, they have received the word, and they have believed that the Father sent the Son into the world. It is the belonging to the Father and being given by the Father to the Son which precedes in time and by necessity our believing in the Son. Now you're asking a question, and I know what the questions are in your head, and there are probably three of them. And I know these questions are there because I've asked these same questions myself. And it's lucky for you that I have the answers to these three questions. So here are the three questions. Does this then do violence to the human will? Does this do violence to the human will? If Jesus says with absolute certainty that I am going to come to the Father because the Father has given me, or sorry, come to the Son because the Father has given me to the Son, if He guarantees that, and if He predestines that, and if He appoints that to be so and decrees it to be so, and He sees to it that it happens, does this do violence to my will? Does God run roughshod over us and drag us kicking and screaming into eternity simply because we are elect? in violation to our will. To ask the question is to answer it that is absurd. No man is saved against his will. Jesus said it's because you're unwilling that you're lost. If you're not willing, you will perish in your unbelief because you will not come to me. Because you love darkness rather than light. Do you think that you're going to walk around heaven and see people there with their arms folded and big sour looks on their face? And you say, what's... What's your problem? The glories of heaven and you look like you just drank a cup of lemon juice. What's your problem? I don't want to be here. I hate the Father. I hate the Son. I hate the Holy Spirit. I hate God's people. I hate God's truth. I hate God's Word. I hate heaven. I hate righteousness. I hate holiness. I hate all of this. But because I was predestined, here I am. God drug me into this place. I didn't want any of this. Is that possible? It's not possible. It's absurd. No man's saved against his will. So why is it that I was willing What happened? Something happened. What was it? Because God, the Spirit, worked upon my will. He made me willing. That is the grace of God. That is the work of the Spirit of God. He made me willing. So that when I came to Christ, I didn't come kicking and screaming and dragging my feet. I'll tell you something, I ran to the Savior. I ran from the wrath of God which is to come. I was so convicted of my sin. I saw in Christ something so precious that I wanted to have it that you couldn't have kept me away from him with a team of draft horses. You could have put an army in my way and I would have come to him. Why? Because I was willing to cross, swim an ocean if I needed to, to get to Christ. There was something in him that was so precious, so irresistible, so lovely. It was the satisfaction for my soul. I was so thirsty. I wanted water that would never make, I would never thirst again. I wanted the bread of heaven so I would never hunger for eternal life and forgiveness again. There was something in Christ that I had to have. Had to have it. Was I willing? Oh, I was more willing than you can imagine. And maybe so that's the story with some of you. I didn't get into heaven against my will. No violation of the human will. God removed my arm of flesh. He took away all my excuses. He exposed my self-righteousness, my pride, brought conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. 
He, he, he bent me. He bowed me. He broke me down. He humbled me. He stripped me of all of my self-confidence. He, he allowed me to see who I am in truth, in his light of his law and his righteousness and his holy demands. He allowed me to see the judgment that is to come. He granted me faith and repentance and a new heart and new affections. And he worked upon my will so that when I came to Christ, I was the most willing comer to Christ anybody has ever seen. Not a violation of human will whatsoever. God worked upon my will to make me willing because my will was in bondage to sin and I am thankful that He set me free from that. He made me willing. That's the first question. Second question, does this mean that none of God's elect, none of God's people ever resist God's will? doesn't mean that, does it? I heard the Gospel dozens of times before I ever trusted Christ. People did everything that they could to get me to trust Christ. I kicked against the goads like Saul of Tarsus. I hated righteousness. I hated truth. I warred against God. Consciously, in my mind, I was fighting and kicking and screaming and resisting Him and His righteous demands for probably four or five, six years of my life. I hated Him and I warred against Him and I wanted nothing to do with it. I resisted Him. But ultimately, for those whom the Father has given to the Son, God will have His way. That is just the way it is. He will not allow His people to perish, and He will subdue your will, and He will hound you, and He will make you willing so that you will come to His Son. I'm thankful for that. I have no problems with that. I am thankful that God made me willing. I am thankful that God worked on my heart. I'm thankful that He drew me with cords of love and bound me to Himself and made me willing to trust Him. I'm grateful for that truth. It's not a violation of human will. It doesn't mean that His elect never resist Him. We do resist Him. We are hostile to Him. But I will tell you this, friends. At the end of the day and in eternity, we are going to, for age after age, crown Him with glory and honor as we see how, in spite of human hostility and hatred and resistance to His sovereign will, God triumphed so that His purpose would stand and His people would be saved and they would secure, be secure and glorify Him. It doesn't mean we don't resist Him. It means that ultimately we will not be able to resist Him finally and fully because God will have His way with His people. And we will be willing. In the day of God's power, when God has appointed the time and the means, He will make us willing. Third question, if God has predestined me to love Him, is it really love? Is it really love? If God has predestined me to love us, love Him? Or does God just sort of want me to love Him and, and I, I need to be able to do this as an act of my own will if it's going to be genuine love? Let me ask you, let me answer that question with a question. Is it possible for somebody who has, who is a slave of darkness, who loves darkness, who is a fallen child of Adam, whose righteousness is as filthy rags, who does not seek God, who hates God, hates the truth, does not love the truth, does not love Christ, wants nothing to do with righteousness or holiness, a person whose carnal state is at enmity with God and unable to subject itself to the law of God, somebody who is bound fast in darkness, whose mind and intellect is enslaved to sin and in darkness, 
whose will is to do only that which is in violation to God's law, who has violated all of God's laws from the moment he was consciously able to do so up until the present time, is it possible for that person to offer to God pure, undefiled, reciprocal relationship love? Is that possible? It is not possible. We in our flesh by ourselves do not have the capacity to love God. We are enemies of God in our mind through wicked wicked works, and we hate him. We do not have the capacity to love him. So here's what God does. He gives us the capacity so that we can love him, and we offer to him love that is free and love that is glorious and love that he desires. It's imperfect love. It's not perfect love. It's not even perfectly obedient love, but it is the type of love that God wants us to offer. He gives us that capacity to love him. And he gives that capacity to whom? To all whom the Father has given to the Son. And all whom the Father has given to the Son will, with certainty, completely, all of them, come without fail to the Son. It's not a violation of human will. It's not that we don't resist, but it's ultimately we will not resist him finally and fully. And it's not a forced or coerced love. It is a free love offered from a heart that has been changed by God so that it can love him the way it should love him in a way that fulfills the law of God. So Jesus says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now to who or to what do we come? We come to Christ, don't we? We come to him. This is in contrast to the crowd. What did the crowd come for? Remember that? We've been looking at it all the way through John chapter 6. What did the crowd want? They wanted the signs. They wanted the benefits. They wanted the free meals. They wanted to see more. They wanted all the messianic stuff that went with it. They wanted a king. They wanted everything according to their liking. But did they want Jesus? No. And all the way through John 6, he has been offering them what? Himself. I am the bread of life. Come to me. What I'm offering you is not physical bread. It's not a mysterious bread. It's not manna. It's not signs. I'm offering you me. Christ is the offer of God himself in the flesh to us. And the crowd didn't see anything appealing in that. Nothing enticing in Christ. They didn't want him. They wanted what he could offer them, what he could give them. And he all the time has been offering them himself. And now, in contrast to the crowd, which only comes to him for the benefits, Jesus says, those whom the Father has given me will come to me. Not my signs, not my benefits, not my food, but they will come to me. They will see something in me that is irresistibly enticing. And they will come to me so that they could have me, the bread of life. They will not be interested in the signs. They will not be interested in miracles. They will not be interested in making me a king, an earthly king after their own making. They're not going to be interested in any of that. They're going to want me. We come to Christ. This is the intimate part of election. We are given by the Father to the Son. That's an intimate transaction. But we come to the Son We don't come to a church. We don't come to an organization. We don't come to the sacraments. We don't come to communion. We don't come to mass. We don't come through baptism. We come to a son, the son, the divine son. It's Jesus that we come to. That's intimate. That's love. That is love. We come and bow our knees in humble submission, yielding ourselves, yielding our pride, getting rid of our sin in repentant humility to the sovereign king of creation, and we acknowledge him, and we love him, and we pursue him, and we want him, and we get him, and that's all we want. Those who are given by the Father come to the Son. That's love. There are people who say, well, this whole everything you're teaching here just makes man into a robot. He has no choice. He just does whatever God has predetermined him to do. There's no choice. There's no decision. There's no affection. There's no genuine love. 
That's not true. That's canard. If you think that's what I'm teaching, you haven't heard anything I've said for the last six weeks. That's not election. That's not what the Son is describing. What Jesus is describing is us coming to Him in love. That's not a robot. We come in affection. And we come in humble surrender as an act of a renewed will that has the capacity to will what our will should be willing and to love Him freely by His grace, which is the very thing that He gives us the capacity to do. Now I want you to notice, with this we close, how different this presentation of Jesus is from how the gospel and how God and Christ are typically portrayed in our evangelistic meetings and our evangelistic presentations. Typically the father and son are pictured like this. The father and son have done everything that they possibly can, and now it's hands off. It's all up to you. All up to you. father hasn't done anything to affect you, influence your will. father hasn't done anything to, to sway you one way or the other. It all rests upon your decision. As I heard one youth pastor even here in town say, the devil has voted against you and God has voted for you and you cast the deciding vote. That's, that's the most horrible theology I have ever heard in my life. That is heretical. That is atrocious. It's not all up to you. You think the Father and the Son are in heaven just wringing their hands saying, oh, I hope he makes the right decision. Oh, I hope he makes the right decision. Oh, if he only knew how much I loved him and if he only knew how much I wanted to do for him, he would just make my day if he chose me. He would make me so happy. I can't do anything at all rests with you. Come on, make the right decision. That's the theology of the church today, which is why all of our philosophy of ministry is geared around tricking people into making that decision, praying that prayer, checking the box, getting the card signed out, becoming part of the program. You make the right decision and you're in. So we have to influence people to make that right decision. That's not the theology that Jesus presents. Not at all. The Father and the Son are not wringing their hands in heaven hoping that their eternal decrees somehow work out. They haven't rested their eternal decrees upon the decision of man and the will of man and the plan of man. All of heaven's glory is not hinging upon belief and unbelief of the multitudes. Not at all. Though the multitudes and though everybody disbelieve, we have this confidence that the Father has given a people to His Son and they will all come to Him and He will redeem them all and He will raise them all up to the eternal glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their glory alone. If you are a Christian today, you owe glory and thanks to three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You will notice that I did not list your name among those three peoples. Why? Because your redemption was the plan of the Father, purchased by the Son, and applied to you by the Holy Spirit to the glory of the eternal God for ages to come. That is the plan of redemption. That is the glory of our Savior. And that is why Christ can say, I know that the Father has given me a people, and they will all come, and I will raise them all up at the last day, and I will lose none of them. So three truths. The Father has given a people to the Son. All that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. And next week we will look at the third one, All those who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. All who are given to the Son, who come to the Son, are received by the Son. Let's pray. Father, we are just thankful for such a glorious salvation, an eternal plan, an eternal purpose, and eternal decrees, which did not hinge upon our belief or our actions. We thank you that you are sovereign and you are able to bring to pass all your good pleasure. 
There is no power on heaven, in heaven or on earth or in hell beneath which can possibly thwart your saving decrees, your saving intentions. Thank you that you have counted us among your people, that you, by your sovereign and glorious grace, have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that in time you have brought us to your Son. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior who is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him by faith, and for a wonderful Savior who intercedes for us even now, making intercession for his people. We thank you that we are safe and that we are secure in Christ. What a glorious God you are. We thank you in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.